Hello, everybody. You can see everyone here at Hobson and 95th as well. And if you're a guest of ours, just let me uh, alert you that we're in a series where we're talking about the future, looking at what the Bible calls prophecy. And so we're trying to understand what's happening in our, our current day and age and what might be ahead of us by looking at what God has revealed to his word. So if you missed last weekend, you can go online and uh, watch, or you can go out to our resource center and pick something up there as well and uh, kind of catch up with us. As we get started, though, um, I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite trilogies. It's the Lord of the Rings. Um, anybody here like that? I haven't seen the new one, The Hobbit, but the other three I try to watch at least once a year. And in the third film, The Return of the King, wise old Gandalf says something kind of profound to one of the very nervous hobbits. He says, the board is set. The pieces are moving. We come at last to the greatest battle of our time. There are three battles that are going to take place in the future according to God's word. The last battle will be the final complete battle, the last rebellion of Satan against God, and it's described in Revelation chapter 20. The battle before that is probably the battle that most people have heard of, even if you don't read your Bible a lot, which I encourage you to do. And that's the battle of Armageddon, described in Revelation chapter 16, when Satan and the Antichrist are battling it out with our Lord as he returns and he conquers them. But there's another battle, and it's a battle we don't oftentimes think about, or hear much about, and it's the battle that we're looking at this month, described in the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to grab uh, your Bible and turn open your iPad or your iPhone, or if you want to use one of the chair Bibles, it's like somewhere around page 658, I think, all right? Uh, Go ahead and grab that, and uh, turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel, and we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 38 this weekend. So you got your Bibles open. This is an important passage of Scripture. We may be seeing the beginnings of this being fulfilled in our day. And that's one of the reasons why we're taking a look at it, trying to make sense of what's going on around us. Now, I'm going to work through it together. And so have your Bibles out, your notepads out, and we're going to just do a lot of different things uh, this weekend to help us understand the text better. Verse 1 says, This is another message that came to me from the Lord. So Ezekiel's telling us that what he's sharing with us is not something, you know, that happened in a bad dream or that he concocted or made up. Uh, This is something that God gave to him as a prophet. And so God is speaking to him, and and, and the Lord says in verse 2, Son of man, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal and prophesy against him. Let's stop there. We've already got some stuff to unpack, okay? The first thing is location. Where are we talking about? And so what I want to do is kind of give us a context of what was taking place here, where this was happening. 
Ezekiel, remember, had been taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so on our map, you're going to see that we've got the, the world laid out there for you. And uh, I just have always wanted to be in control of the world. But uh, anyway, if you look at this, if you look at this uh, map with me, you see Israel is just really, really small over there. And it's actually the size of about New Jersey. So it's really small. And you'll notice uh, across the way is Baghdad, right? And, and Iraq. So Ezekiel is in what we think of modern-day Iraq, Babylon, all right? But as he receives this vision, it's from the perspective over there on the coast of little Israel. And he is told that he is supposed to, we're going to kind of zoom out here, he's supposed to look north, okay? So if you're in Israel and you look north, you can actually look well, not really, but you end up looking right up at the Arctic Circle. But God isn't telling him to look that far north. There's not going to be an invasion of polar bears, all right? Instead, God is calling him to look north, verse 6, verse 15, chapter 39, verse 2, to the farthest north where, it says, you'll find Magog, Meshech, and Tubal. You say, well, what is, what is Magog, Meshech, and Tubal? Well, those are ancient geographical terms describing where a certain group of people settled and lived. Now, let me explain to you what I mean. Turn back to Genesis chapter 10. We'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. Into what's called the Table of Nations. It's kind of the beginning of how all the nations made their way around the world. And in Genesis chapter 10, we read some fascinating things. It says, This is the account of the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. Remember Noah and the ark? Many children were born to them after the great flood. The descendants of Japheth, so that's one of Noah's sons, were Gomer, ah, Magog, Medai, Javan, Atubal, Meshech and Tiras. So when God says to Ezekiel, look north, far north, you see in the context of chapter 38, look far north to the land of Magog and Tubal and Meshech. What he's saying to them is, what he's saying to him is, look up toward the descendants of Noah's son. Noah's grandsons, because something's going to happen up there. And when you read scholars, when you read the ancient historians, for instance, the father of history, Herodotus, or when you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, or when you read Jerome, who was a scholar and and historian in the early church, or listen, when you read a guy by the name of Voltaire, who is a French atheist, scholar, historian, but was really fascinated by this passage of Scripture, all of them say from their studies and their knowledge that the descendants of Gog or, or, excuse me, the descendants of Magog all settled up in where we think today of as modern-day Russia in that particular region. So if I throw another kind of map up for you, I'll give you a sense in terms of modern days 
where that would be. We're talking about, I love electronics, we're talking about Russia. So you see Russia laid out there. That's where the descendants of Japheth settled. Remember, the ark settled on the mountains of Ararat, and then they moved out and then began to occupy this region. And so he's saying, look up in this direction because something is about to take place. So let's keep reading on what happens here in chapter 38. He says, Son of man, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. You say, oh, wait a minute, who's Gog? Well, Gog is, according to linguists, a term like president or king or prime minister or czar. In essence, what Gog means is it's a reference to an office, someone who occupies an office. Now, we're not told who that particular person is, at the point in time that this prophecy is going to come true, if it were to come true today, perhaps one would say somebody like uh, Vladimir Putin, but I'm not saying that this is who Ezekiel's talking about specifically, but it's somebody of that kind of magnitude, somebody who has that kind of power, that kind of authority, who is to the far north of Israel that these words are being directed toward. Give him this message, verse 3. Now listen carefully. From the sovereign Lord, Gog, I am your enemy. Now if I had my uh, red pen out or my yellow pen out, and I wasn't using a chair Bible, okay, I would circle sovereign and I would circle enemy. So in your own Bible or whatever electronic equipment you have, just kind of make a circle there, all right? And as you do that, let's talk about it for a minute. Because God refers to himself as sovereign several times in this passage of Scripture. Not only here, but if you come down to verse 10, this is what the sovereign Lord says. If you go up to verse 17, this is what the sovereign Lord asks. Now, when God keeps referring to himself as sovereign, he's doing that for a reason. Because he's dealing with the nations, He's dealing with Gog. He's dealing with these, these powers that have been already referred to. And in essence, what God is saying is, I want you to know that I'm in control of the world. I'm in control of history. I'm in control of time. I'm in control of where things are going, not you. You might be prideful. You might be arrogant. You might think you know it all, have it all. But I want you to know I am sovereign. And what God said to Ezekiel back then is still true today. That no matter what goes on in this world, no matter what president or what prime minister or what king or, or what ruler or what czar or whatever title they have, no matter what they say, no matter how they boast, no matter how many nuclear arms they have, God is still sovereign. God is still in charge. In fact, I've been reading through the Psalms lately and as I've been doing that, I, I've just been truly blessed in my heart to just read those precious words. But the other day when I was reading, uh, as I first started in Psalm 2, I was reminded just what it means when it says that God is sovereign. In the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms. And in Psalm 2, when David speaks out, just listen to his words. Why are the nations so angry? A lot of angry nations right now, aren't there? 
Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? Everybody's got their plan, don't they? The kings of the earth, you could say presidents, prime ministers, whatever you want. The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord. Ultimately, the battle is against God. And against his anointed one. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. We don't want God in our life. We don't want God in our nation. We don't want God in our laws. We don't want God telling us how we should behave ourselves and our morals. That's kind of the attitude that's being expressed there. We're going to break ourselves free from God. But the one, this is the sovereign one, the one who rules in heaven, what does he do? He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. That's a reference to Christ. And someday how our Lord is going to come and rule and reign over this earth. And so in essence, what God is saying, you can can boast, you can mock all you want, but I laugh at you. I'm sovereign. And ultimately, I triumph. And all you have to do is look at the, um, uh, the junkyard of history and see the nations that have come and boasted and kings and rulers that have come and boasted and are gone today because they're so full of arrogance and God brought them down. So he's the sovereign Lord, it says in Ezekiel chapter 38. Moving on in the passage of Scripture, he also said, I am your enemy. Now, you do not want God to be your enemy. But the reality is, all of us at one time were God's enemy. Do you know that? Over in the book of Colossians, it tells us that, that we are all once enemies of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says... Uh, Paul's saying, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. How many of you have ever had an evil thought? Either campus, raise your hands. Okay. If somebody next to you didn't raise your hand or you didn't raise your hand, again, then you're an alien in our midst. You're just from another planet, okay? We've all been there, all done that, all right? Yet now he has reconciled you to himself to the death of Christ in his physical body. Isn't that great? As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Isn't that great? That's you. You were once his enemy, but he came and sent his son to die for you. And now he forgives you. He cleanses you. And all you have to do is receive his son into your life. And you are declared not guilty. And God, God sees you as though, as though you didn't have a single fault. He sees you like you're perfect. It's kind of like me in these glasses. I'm having a hard time getting used to wearing glasses. Don't want to wear glasses, but I need glasses. See, when my glasses are off... Uh, and I'm trying to read the Bible, it, it, nowadays it's all a big blur, okay? When I put these glasses on, man, it comes into sharper focus. When God looks at you and me without his son, all he sees is a sinful blur, a sinful mess. But when he sees us through what his son Jesus did for us, all of a sudden, all of a sudden he gets a real good close-up of us, and guess what he sees? Perfection. He's saying, he doesn't see perfection. You don't know me. I'm not saying he's looking at you. He's looking at his son in you. And that's how he views you. Isn't that awesome? That's why every day you can get up and you can know that. 
And that's why we celebrate Holy Communion. And that's why we talk about God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness. Because it is the awesome privilege that he gives us. But in this passage of scripture, when God says, I am your enemy... He's talking now about those who oppose him, who refuse his message, refuse his grace, who in essence say, God, we don't want you. We want to break free of you like we read in Psalm 2. We want to oppose you. We want to oppose your standards. We want to oppose your morals. We want to rewrite things. God says, when you take that posture and attitude toward me, you make me your enemy and I will deal with you. Sometimes when I think about our own country today, I, I, I just look at America and I just see what we're doing, uh, uh, you know, politically, economically, socially, morally. I just see all the stuff we're doing and I just feel like, man, we are just, it's like we are just in God's face saying, leave us alone. We don't want your blessing. We don't want you to help us. We don't want you to guide us. We don't want your Ten Commandments. We want to make our own commandments. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wow, we are making ourselves an enemy. We're, we're just, you know, we're putting ourselves on God's, God's list. And that's a dangerous place to be. God also said in Genesis that he would bless those who blessed his people. I'm talking about Israel. And he would curse those who curse his people. And I'm thinking to myself, what's our attitude as a nation toward Israel these days? Again, are we putting ourselves in a place where, where we're asking for trouble from God? Something to think about, isn't it? The words that are ancient speak to us so relevantly today. Verse 3 says, Given this message from the sovereign Lord Gog, I am your enemy. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws to lead you out with your whole army, your horses and your charioteers in full armor and a great horde armed with shields and swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its armies will also join you along with the armies of Beth, Togarmah from the distant north and many others. So let's go back again and, and look at our, uh, our atlas. In essence, what is being said in this passage is that the places that you see outlined here are going to come against Israel. So Russia would be where Magog, Meshech Tubal, uh, is located. When we talk about Persia, we're looking at where Iran is today. That was the ancient term. Uh, put is Algeria and Libya. Uh, Ethiopia stands for Sudan in that whole region. And then when he talks about Gomer, we're probably talking about some aspect of Turkey. And all the other mountainous regions that's referred to would be, for instance, like northern Jordan and Syria, Lebanon, places like that. In other words, all these areas converge against Israel. Come down on Israel as a coalition. Now, something that's said that's very interesting here is God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and lead you with your whole army. God, you will lead the coalition and, and you're going to want to invade Israel. You're going to want to attack or you're going to want to come and I'm going to invite you to come in. And the question is, what is it that draws them in? There's a couple of answers to that. 
one of the things that draws them in is anti-Semitism, jealousy and hatred of the Jews. Anti-Semitism has been around ever since God called Abraham to begin a nation through whom he would bless the entire world. And we know today as we read the headlines and study the Middle East, there is a hatred. And we hear from people like the leader of Iran. We want to wipe Israel off the map. We want to push them into the sea. We hear of other countries that would just love to see their annihilation and destruction. We know that in Europe today, there's an attitude of anti-Semitism. We know in, Ma- in, in Russia that uh, in the 19th century, they practiced the pogroms, which is a Russian word which simply means to devastate violently, and that Jews were persecuted. But there's another reason why. These nations want Israel, want to invade and take her over. And that, that's because of prestige and power and natural resources. So what do you mean by prestige and power? Let's talk for a moment about Russia today. Vladimir Putin is, again, the leader of Russia, and he's made no bones about it that he wants to bring Mother Russia back into her glory again and be a dominant force. Now, he really can't, he can't really move to the west, and he really can't move to the east, but he certainly can influence the Arabs to the south, and he's been making alliances with them for these last several years and building a coalition. They have oil. He's got armament. He's got weaponry. He's got money. There can be a trade that takes place here. And he's more than happy to help them get rid of Israel. Someone has estimated that if Russia could gain control of that entire region, they would basically run 50% of all the oil that is produced and sold. And so there's a big advantage for Russia to do that. He gives them prominence. He gives them power. He gives them a coalition. He gives them a place back on the map again. If you read the headlines and study it carefully and look at what's going on between Russia and Iran and Russia and Syria, backing Assad, and Russia and Egypt, that's an unholy alliance taking place there. That's already been described way back here, and we see it happening today right in the very news. Israel also has something else. They've just discovered a whole bunch of natural gas, the Leviathan, off the coast. And they're looking for partners to help them develop that field of natural gas. And the biggest bidder on that is Gazprom from Russia. And the Israelis are, you know, trying to avoid that because they're not real sure about that kind of a partnership because of who else Russia supports. So it is a powder keg over there. And we're watching this all take shape in our own day and age. Verse 7, get ready, be prepared, keep all the armies around you mobilized, and take command of them. You just hear God mocking, don't you? You think you're in charge. You think you've got it all together. You think you can come and do with my people as you wish. Verse 8, a long time from now, you will be called into action. Prophecy, future. I wonder if that time is now. In the distant future, you will swoop down on the land of Israel, which will be enjoying peace, and is better translated security, 
after recovering from war and after its people have returned from many lands to the mountains of Israel, I think that's 1948, you and all your allies, a vast and awesome army, will roll down on them like a storm and cover the land like a cloud. This is what the sovereign Lord says. At that time, evil thoughts will come to your mind and you'll devise a wicked scheme. You will say, Israel is unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. I will march against her and destroy these people who live in such confidence. You know, Israel in many ways is a very confident country. They're the fourth largest air force in the world. And the general military index says they are the most militarized nation in the world. And they've got the Iron Dome, you know. And, and there's a sense of confidence. I mean, Netanyahu's made it clear. We aren't going to take anything from anybody. We will stand our ground. And, and there's, a, there's an air of confidence there. And it's in that air of confidence that these forces come. And Israel is quite surprised and shocked. Verse 2, or verse 12. I will go for those formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. I will capture vast amounts of plunder. Remember the Leviathan? Remember the wealth that Israel's starting to realize now right off her coast? For the people are rich with livestock and other possessions now. They think the whole world revolves around them. There's anti-Semitism. There's an attitude that exists today. But Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish will ask, Do you really think the armies you have gathered can rob them of silver and gold? Do you think you can drive away their livestock and seize their goods and carry out plunder? Who is Tarshish? Who's Dadan? and the other uh, nation or power, Sheba, that's mentioned. We're not exactly sure. Some people speculate it could be Saudi Arabia, possibly it could be Egypt, Tarshish could be Spain, it could represent Europe. In other words, there are going to be other countries that are not going to go into this battle, but they're also not going to come to Israel's defense. They will stand at a distance, so to speak, and they will look on and say, we're going to pass a resolution, you really shouldn't do this. But nobody's going to pay attention to the resolution. Kind of heard of this thing called the UN. You know, that makes up resolutions and rules and then nobody ever pays attention to it. Anyway, they do as they want. And there'll be many nations who will do that. And next weekend, I'm going to talk about where America fits into this and the growing attitude in our own country of not really wanting to back Israel or come to her aid. What was unthinkable in the past is now becoming very possible when you consider some of the appointments that are being made in our government today and those individuals' philosophies and attitude toward Israel. I'm just telling you what the headlines say. And then looking at it through the lens of Scripture. Maybe this is just warm-up. Maybe it's not going to happen right away. But it sure sounds like I'm reading the modern-day headlines when I'm looking at the ancient prophecy given to Ezekiel, it sounds like today, verse 14, 
Therefore, son of man, prophesy against God. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. When my people are living in peace in their land, then you will rouse yourself. You will come from your homeland in the distant north. We already figured that out. With your vast cavalry and your mighty army, and you will attack my people Israel, covering their land like a cloud. At that time, in the distant future, I will bring you against my land as everyone watches. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or whatever it is you watch. While everyone watches, who would have ever thought this? Ezekiel's making it pretty clear, right? I mean, how many battles and wars have we watched in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in other places of the world via, via satellite? He says, everyone is going to watch. And my holiness, I love this, and my holiness will be displayed by what happens to you, Gog then all the nations, and I think, yes, the United States of America, will know that I am the Lord. It's exciting, isn't it? Scary, but exciting. And I wish I could continue, but we got to bridge over until next weekend. <laughs> to see what happens next, to see what takes place in light of the things that we've just talked about. And how it affects the nations and where the church will be and where you and I will be and what it all means. But before, before we pack up, before we pack up, I've been, I've been listening a lot to individuals talk about what's going on in the world. And uh, the other day I was at one of my favorite hangouts actually studying. And while I was there with my Bible open at the Golden Arches, there was this conversation going on by two adult men, well-dressed men, and it was all about what's happening to America. And they were, I don't know if they were being loud on purpose or not, but the whole restaurant could hear the discussion. And I really leaned in. And they were talking about, you know, what's going on with gun control and all these issues, and I'm not here to talk about that. But their, their issue was this, power, Power is being taken away from us. The government, they're taking power away from us. Pretty soon we won't be able to defend ourselves. Government's invading our space. Our power is gone. And you know, the more I, the more I listen to people and, and families and young families, I sense in our nation, I sense there's a kind of a spirit of fear at work in people's lives. Afraid of what we see happening in our nation. Afraid of what we see happening in the world. Wondering how this impacts us. And as I, as I listened to their very fear-driven conversation, and I could tell it was upsetting other people who were listening to it, and I don't blame them for being upset with what's going on in our society today. As families, with young kids, and schools, and all the things that are taking place. But as I, was, as I was listening to all that, I thought to myself, should I, as a believer, should I live fearfully in this world? Should I be shaking in my boots in this world? No. Why? Because the sovereign God's in control. And I need to put my faith square in him. And I need to stop thinking about myself and the church as being powerless. I'm not powerless. You're not powerless. The church isn't powerless. We've got the gospel, which Paul says is the dynamite of God. In Romans chapter 1, 
verse 16. This is the power of God that can change a heart, that can change a life. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about how you and I have received the glory of God into our lives. The Spirit of God has come into our life. The Spirit of God's love has come into our life. And Paul says that that love is our power. The love of God. So we don't have to talk about guns and bullets and ammunition and all the kinds of things the world's talking about today. What we ought to be talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God. That's what can change a life, a family, a community, a nation, and a world. Right? And instead of being fearful... Instead of being anxious, instead of being worried, instead of wondering, what should I tell my kids? What should I tell my grandkids? I'll tell you what you should tell them. You should tell them they're the most powerful people on earth. Not because of their muscles, not because of their money, not because of success, not because of what they have, but because of who God is and the fact that he lives in them. And the most powerful weapon we have is the truth. And when we, when we live that in love and express it in love and passion and zeal, I'm telling you what, it is the only hope of this world. So while we're watching the world swirl around us, while we're watching people confused and anxious and afraid, oh, church, let's rise up. Let's rise up with strength. Let's rise up with God's love. Let's rise up determined that we're going to be salt and light and make a difference in the world around us. Because God is sovereign. And because he's coming again. And because the only reason he left you and me here is to tell everybody we can about that good news. Let's pray. Father, these indeed are strange times. The board is set. The pieces are moving and we sense, oh God, that the world is gathering for some kind of epic event. People are living today in fear, overcome by fear. People today, God, are looking for means and ways to protect themselves and their families. God, when we don't have you in our lives and we don't have the hope of the gospel in our lives, we're going to turn every other direction, every other way. But I pray and ask, God, that you'd help us as believers to be bold, bold in our convictions of who Jesus Christ is, bold in our conviction about the word of God. And Lord, to walk out of our campuses ready even if we have to suffer and live sacrificially ready to make known the power that changes a life changes a family changes a community and father very well could change this world in jesus name we pray